snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. On the fifth day of the fifth month of every Chinese lunar year, people in China and several other ancient countries celebrate a special occasion called the Dragon Boat Festival, or better known in Chinese as Duan Wu Jie, a holiday over 2,000 years old. Legend has it that in 278 BC, when China was in the Warring States period and run by several rival states, Chu Yuan, a poet and statesman from the state of Chu, drowned himself in Miluo River after learning the news of the downfall of his state's capital. People living nearby rushed onto their boats to save him, but failed. So they started to throw rice into the water as a food offering to Chu Yuan's spirit. As well as a way to distract fish from eating his body. As time goes by, on every anniversary of Chu Yuan's death, racing dragon boats and eating zongzi, a palm-sized snack made of glutinous rice wrapped in reed leaves, have gradually become the common practice to commemorate this great poet for his loyalty and sacrifice. But why bother? Why is the appetite for celebrating Chu Yuan still around after some 2,000 years? So, for the upcoming Dragon Boat Festival, which falls on the coming Monday, June the 18th this year, we'll try to best answer this question. On today's program, our reporter Shu Yu talks with Professor Gu Pausuku from Crane's College, City University of New York. Teaching classical Chinese, he has also written two books on Chu Yuan's poetry. Let's take a listen, Professor Suku. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Well, before we touch upon Chuan's poetry, for our listeners who may know little about this great poet, could you share with them who Chuan was, since his life experience is no doubt a story worth telling? Well, that's a very, very interesting one, and of course, what I'm saying is based very much on the biography in.、Um, What you call in Chinese the Shiji, the and in English what is referred to as the records of the Grand Historian, by the first great historian of China, Sima Qian,、mm-hmm. probably written、uh, in the second century BC,、mm-hmm. possibly first. <laughs> anyway, according to that, now of course what we have to understand that Qian lived during a period. He lived around the the fourth to the third century BC. Mm-hmm. And he lived during a period that is called in Chinese the Zhangguo period,、uh, known in English as the Warring States period, where China was broken up into a number of contending states who were fighting for dominance.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, two of the biggest states were the state of Qin and the state of Chu. Yeah, the state of Chu was actually a great southern kingdom. That was a kind of parallel kingdom to the Zhou Dynasty,、mm. and Chu Yuan was an officer of the Chu Royal Court, who was brilliant as a diplomat and also as a legislator, and、uh, that brilliance managed to win him entry into the king's inner circle. The king's、uh, name at the time was King Huai. It's in the course of drafting laws for the king that Chu Yuan's troubles began. Another officer hoped to pass off as his own, 
the laws that Qian had drafted, but Qian refers to, uh, refused to allow this. Mm-hmm. And so the officer uh, was infuriated and reported Qian to the king. And he slandered Qian with, with a, a lie that Qian had boasted that without his help, the king would never be, have been able to legislate on his own. Mm-hmm. And the king believed the slander and turned against Qian and dismissed him from his position. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that the absence of Qian from the inner circle of the king left the king open to the influence of uh, the internal enemies of Chu. Mm. And these internal enemies were agents of the rival state of Qin. Mm-hmm. And they eventually caused the downfall of Chu, even bringing about a situation where the, the king was kidnapped and uh, kept in the state of Qin until he died. In the meantime, Qian, having been rejected by his king, composed the Li Sao mm-hmm. as a kind of protest. Mm-hmm. And of course, that is his greatest work. The great masterpiece of Qian is the Li Sao. Mm-hmm. He composed it in order to warn his king against the internal enemies, the foreign agents in the state of Chu. Mm. But the king did not listen. Uh, he did not take the advice of the poem. And instead, the, the successor of the king had the poet banished to the wilds of southern Chu, mm. where he eventually committed suicide uh, by throwing himself into the Milua River as an act of protest and despair. Yeah. And of course the Dragon Boat Festival commemorates this suicide, you know, with uh, dragon boat racing and the eating of zongzi, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's that's the basic story. Uh, Of course, the the last part of the story is that the state of Chu was conquered by the state of Qin, and, of course, the state of Qin unified the warring states and became, of course, the, the first major centralized military empire in China. Yeah, it seems that Xu Yuan reflected a great deal of his troubled eventful life in his writing, right? Very much so, yes, very much so. Especially in the Li Sao, but also in some of the other pieces of the Chuzi as well. Mm-hmm. Especially the piece that is known in Chinese as Ai Ying, which also means uh, lament for the capital of the state of Chu, which, is the, which was called Ying. Yeah. This is a very, very, very sad poem, which is very different from the Li Sao, um, mm. not very allegorical. But in fact, it seems to be an eyewitness account of how devastated the state of Ying was after the attack mm-hmm. by Qin. But you know, there has always been much long-playing controversy among scholars concerning the personality of Chu Yuan. You know, judged by his poetry, he was no doubt a fearless patriot and a literary genius. Yet there are also some arguments saying he was a self-pitying, narcissistic idealist. So, in your opinion, what kind of man was he? I find this this is a very very interesting question, and I think that the image of Chu Yuan as self-pitying and narcissistic has to do with a somewhat mistaken way of reading the Li Sao. Mm-hmm. Because people generally think that the person speaking in the Li Sao, that is the main persona of the Li Sao, yeah. is the same as Chu Yuan. Yeah. Because you know, this, this person in the Li Sao is constantly talking about himself. Mm-hmm. And in fact, 
that should not be taken as Chu Yuan speaking directly to us. The person in the Li Sao is a character, mm. and that character represents higher moral principles. And uh, in a sense, it's a spirit who, is, um, who embodies those higher moral principles. And what Chu Yuan is saying in the poem is that those higher moral principles are being rejected by his king. Mm-hmm. And so thus you have the allegory of a love affair between the king and this, um, you might call a minister or you might call a spirit, mm-hmm. or a minister possessed by a spirit. And this leads to the image of a self-pitying narcissistic person. But really properly read, um, it's really an allegory where the spirit wants to remain with the king, mm-hmm. is doing everything he or she, because it's really possibly both, can, but the king is rejecting yeah. those higher principles. Mm-hmm. And those higher principles, they're the ones that are speaking. That is, or we should say this, this spirit who is there to protect the kingdom is speaking. And this idea actually goes back to a very, very ancient Chinese idea, which is the idea of the Tianming, which uh, in English is translated as the, the mandate of heaven. Mm, yeah. And, and of course, we, we have this idea in later Chinese philosophy, more warring states of philosophy, but the way it was formulated in some people's minds mm-hmm. was that when heaven gave its mandate, it sent a spirit to protect the kingdom. Mm-hmm. The main speaker in the Lisao is that spirit who has been sent to, to protect the kingdom. Yeah. And the, the spirit is pleading not to be rejected because the spirit has arrived in the kingdom because it, is, it has attracted the spirit with its virtue. And the virtue is represented by all of those wonderful fragrant flowers. Mm-hmm that we, we see in the, in the Lisao. However, the king seems to be developing a taste for weeds or very, very bad-smelling plants. And yeah. this is driving the spirit away. And of course, that represents corruption, political corruption. Yeah. And, so what, and that is why the spirit leaves at the end of the poem, because the, the king has driven him out with the bad-smelling plants, which, of course, represent, in the case of the state of Chu, mm-hmm. That represents the foreign agents uh, from the state of Qin mm-hmm. who are attempting to, to corrupt the king and basically cause the downfall of the state of Chu. And in that sense, that is the, at least one way of reading the poem allegorically. Yeah, but you know, the typical Confucian review always think much of the Yuan's work, you know, as you said, they are political allegories. But there yeah. are some people argue about it because some people will compare it with the uh, ancient Chinese classic of poetry, the Book of Song, or as well as we know in Chinese as Shi Jing, like Qu Yuan's yeah. another work, Nine Songs, Jiu Ge. A lot of them are actually yeah. love songs. There's nothing to do with, with politics. What's your take on this? Oh, well, I, that's, a, that's actually a very good question. Much of Shi Jing is actually love songs, yeah. uh, folk songs, some of them, in fact, are uh, political songs, uh, protest songs, but all of them are anonymous. Mm. And you mentioned the joga, uh, which we call the nine songs in, in English. And interestingly enough, um, the early Han commentators looked to the joga for information about the life of Qiyuan. Mm-hmm. However, the joga 
or the nine songs are really shaman hymns. They are love songs to the various uh, shun or, or gods and spirits. Yeah. Uh, because in ancient uh, Chu, the way the shamans attracted the spirits was by dressing up in these beautiful, fragrant flowers and beautiful robes and playing lovely music to which they danced these uh, rather sensual dances, as they're described in the Nine Song. Yeah. This would attract the spirits, and uh, the shaman, the word in, in Chinese, of course, is wu, the shaman would have a kind of love song, a love affair with the spirit, but then the spirit would almost always leave at yeah. the end uh, of the ceremony. So this is how it was going through, and the, the Li Sao is very much based on this idea. But, but the thing is that the, the nine songs of the joker definitely are, uh, you, you cannot get any information about Chu Yuan's life from them. I think my theory is that Chu Yuan was in charge of a certain ritual function at the court of Chu, mm. and uh, that these are songs that he wrote, and they are every bit as great as the Li Sao. They're very, very beautiful. In fact, they are some of the most beautiful uh, religious poetry in the world. They compare well with anything from any other culture. Professor Gu Pasuku from City University of New York discussing with Shi Yu the life story of Chinese poet Chu Yuan and his masterpieces. Coming up... In many ways, the message of Chu Yuan is a very, very similar message. Moral integrity is more important than life. More to come. Don't go away. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. As far as I know, you have also translated the latest English edition of Chu Zi, which is a book titled The Song of Chu, an anthology of Asian Chinese poetry by Chu Yuan and others. So I'm curious about what did you find most challenging during the translation and what did you find most interesting? Well, of course, I had already translated the Li Sao, but even trying to do, shall we say, a readable version of the Li Sao was extremely difficult. Mm. And the, but the poem after the Li Sao that was most difficult yeah. was the great Tian Wen, which is often translated into English as the heavenly questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I translated as Ask the Sky. This is a very long poem, and which contains, in some ways, even more difficulty than the Lisa. So it took me quite a long time to translate that. That has a great deal of um, allusions and references to ancient mythology, things of that sort. It was uh, quite, a, quite a job. Mm. And, of course, but the, the hardest part, of course, is to make those things at all readable. Yeah. And, of course, in translation, you lose a great deal. You lose the form of the poems because, you know, of course, ancient Chinese poetry has meter and it rhymes. That sort of thing you cannot reproduce in English without actually destroying the meaning of the poems. Yeah. And so I had to basically work on the poems, uh, translating them into a somewhat modern idiom. Mm. But the thing about that that I find rather interesting is that poems like the, the Nine Songs, the Joga, mm. and uh, the Li Sao are very, very interesting. We really have to think of uh, Chu Yuan. When you look at his poems and you compare them to, let's say, developments in modern poetry 
in the late 19th and the 20th century. Mm. You really find that uh, Qiyuan has much in common with modern poetry. Really? Yes, I really think that Qiyuan really has to be looked upon as a precursor of modernist poetry. And I, I say that not just because, you know, the, of course, one of the great inventors of modern poetry was Ezra Pound. And some of Ezra Pound's techniques were, in fact, derived from Chinese poetry, perhaps not specifically from Qian's poetry, but definitely he, he looked to the Shi Jing mm-hmm. uh, for some of the principles of modernism. Mm-hmm. But in the Li Sao, you have this, some of the same techniques that are used in the Shi Jing, uh, in the Book of Songs, that is, I should say. However, there's something else in Xu Yuan's poetry that makes him very much a modernist. I said he is also a kind of surrealist poet. There is a surrealist quality in much of his uh, poetry. Mm. And um, if you read him in that light, you find that... Uh, yeah, it, it really makes a lot of sense. It's allegorical, but he is using the mythology, mm. the imagery of shamanism, to depict a kind of psychological reality. Mm. And the techniques that he uses have a lot of similarity to the surrealists, such as André Breton, uh, Apollinaire, and poets of the you know the mid twentieth century, the early to the mid twentieth century, who were doing surrealist poetry, and uh, this is this is an angle, of course, that has never been taken. There, there's a strong because because Chu Yuan, of course, is is very much a, a national hero in China, and national heroes tend to be interpreted in terms of uh, political needs, mm. and there was a, there's a strong tendency to try to analyze. Qian's poetry in terms of uh, what you call in Chinese xianshizhui, or realism, mm-hmm. versus langmanzhui, which is romanticism. So the debate is, well, how much of his poetry is realist? How much of his poetry is romantic? Yeah. But there are other categories, and these are the categories that you get in modern poetry, that are, are actually much more complex. And Qian is much better understood in the light of very, very recent developments in um, modern literature. Mm-hmm. So is that the reason why you once said, and I quote, Qi Yuan was as important to the development of Chinese literature as Homer was to the development of Western literature? Absolutely. For example, okay, when we read Homer, mm-hmm. that is in the West, the influence of Homer is very, very deep. He influences not only poetry writing, but also novel writing, because the epic poems of the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer are not only poems, but they're stories. They're epic poems, that is to say, it's a poem with a, with a long story. So we look to Homer for narrative techniques. We look to Homer, but also imagery. Yeah. Uh, for a long time, it was very, very difficult to write about the sea without reference, direct or indirect, to Homer because his images of the sea are so vivid, and they've become very influential throughout Western literature. In the same way, Homer uh, is one of the great poets of war, yeah. and his descriptions of warfare are very vivid as well. They also have a great deal of imagery, and so poets writing about such things would look back to Homer, and they did in the West for a very, very long time. Mm. When you're dealing with Qian, you are dealing with very, very complex phenomena. 
On the one hand, Chuyan is very much the poet of mystery, and specifically the mystery of nature. Yeah. Uh, the sense that there are divine presences behind natural phenomena. And so the imagery of mysterious nature and of mysterious divine presences is very, very influential in the history of Chinese poetry. And people look back mm. to Chuyan for those things. For example, for at the same time, you have Chuyan, the poet of political complaint. Yeah. In other words, Chuyan created a language of political complaint in China that is still useful. Yeah. Uh, for example, the great Tang Dynasty poet Li Bai, when you read his poetry, now we don't think of Li Bai as, a, as a, so much a political poet, yeah. but actually Li Bai is a very, very good poet to see the influence of Chia. Mm. The reason is that while uh, the most popular poems of Li Bai are what uh, Chinese people refer to as the romantic or the Langman side of Li Bai. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, these are, these are great poems, but if you look at those poems, the influence of Chuyan is very, very great. But Li Bai was also a political poet. He wrote a group of poems, poems known as the Gu Feng Wu Shi Jiu Shou, which is translated into English as the 59 Ancient Heirs. And in these poems, we have a great deal of reference to Qian. It, it, many of the poems involve sort of divine figures that fly in the air, but they look down on the world mm. and see its troubles. That happens in, in a number of those, of those particular poems. Mm. And of course, that's exactly what happens in the Li Sao. Yeah. And so this kind of magical world and political complaint are combined in Li Bai in an ingenious way. But of course, he couldn't have done it without the precedent of uh, the poetry of Yan. And also, there is another image. I, I said before that uh, war, and of course, the, the warrior hero is dominant in the poetry of uh, Homer, at least some parts. Yeah. But what you have in Qian is a very, very useful thing, considering the history of imperial China. Yeah. And that is this, the nobility of failure. Mm. Qian gives us the image of a failure, but who is noble. And failure is noble when it's failure caused by your adherence to moral principle. When you would prefer to die rather than give up your integrity. So is it like what happened in the poem Guoshang? Yes, not only in Guoshang, but also in all of his poetry. Of course, the Guoshang is about a defeat. Yeah. Right? It's a hymn to soldiers who have died. Mm. And again, it's the, it's the idea that, yes, even in failure, you can be noble, and that you can serve as a kind of example mm -hmm. uh, to the world. And, and, of course, we see, we see this in many of the great uh, warring states philosophers, such as Mengzi, for example. Mm. Remember that, of course, in, in Mengzi, he, he says, Yu wo suo yu ye, xiong zhang yi wo suo yu ye, right, that particular one, where he says, uh, fish is what I want, bear paws is also what I want, but if I, have, if I can't get both of them together, I'll give up the fish and take the bear paws. And then he says, 
life is what I want, moral integrity is also what I want. But if I can't have both together, I'll give up my life and take moral integrity. And in many ways, the message of Chuyuan is a very, very similar message. Moral integrity is more important than life. Probably that's the reason why he committed suicide. I would think so. I think that that is、uh, the best way to interpret his suicide, rather than as a, a kind of narcissistic act or even mental illness. I think that he was really, he was really saying, "Well, if I if I cannot protect my king, if I cannot maintain my moral integrity, then I would rather die." Now, of course, this is still a great debate in Chinese philosophy. Some people say, "Well, that it's better to stay alive and be useful." It's very hard to say. Yeah, it's hard to say, but I think he's persistent in moral integrity and loyalty. It's a reason why you know some two thousand years after his death, and people are still paying homage to him. And also,、uh, we could say that Xu Yuan belonged to this classic of literary gentry. But I suppose his contribution to Chinese culture and society still have this very popular, or I should rather say, a very populist impact. Well, that, that's a very interesting point because, of course, the the part of the populist part of、um, Chuyuan、mm-hmm. really has to do with the holiday that is、uh, celebrated in his honor. Yeah, it's a popular holiday where it goes very, very far back, and it has such a long history.、Mm-hmm. You know, and everybody—it's—it's it's not an aristocratic holiday. It's a holiday,、uh, even though it's maybe celebrating an aristocrat,、uh, Chuyuan. But it's it's a, a, a holiday of the people. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a, another side、uh, to Chuyuan's, if you want, populism.、Mm. Yeah, that is it. I, I mentioned before the issue of moral integrity. Yeah. And it appears that,、uh, and if we look at、uh, Chuyuan's poetry, we really get a sense that part of his moral integrity involves his concern about the common people.、Mm-hmm. And that his main complaint against his king was that the king's policies would not care for the common people. That the king's policies, in fact, left the common people out.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, there's some allusion to this in in uh, the Li Sao and、uh, some of the other poems attributed to Chuyuan.、Mm-hmm. And even the names that are taken that the, of the character in the Li Sao. Are very very interesting. Now these names are very often、uh, they're taken to be just other names of Chuyuan, but the name that、uh, the character in the Li Sao gives as his given name is Zhengzhe,、mm. which means correct principles、yeah. or true norm. But the other name that is really interesting is the word Lingjun, which is a, sh- a kind of shamanistic name.、Uh, yeah. Ling is. That is, the shamans will take the word Ling to show that they are shamans.、Mm. But the word Jun is rather interesting because the word Jun, which can mean a number of different things, is a cognate with another word, or in fact sounds exactly like another word, which was one of the basic controversies among the political philosophers of the Warring States period, and that was the equitable distribution of wealth.、Mm. It's very, very interesting that he would use this this term, which could easily be interpreted、uh, as meaning the equitable, or should we call it the fair distribution of wealth. It 
So I'm not saying that Xu Yuan was a communist. There's, <laughs> there is no, no question that he, was, he wasn't. I mean, he was an ancient aristocrat. But like Mengzi, like uh, Mencius, we call him Mencius in English, he believed that the, a king was a true king when he looked out for the people. Mm. And uh, if he didn't look out for the people, then he wasn't a true king. And Mencius, that's, that's basically Mencius' idea, Mengzi. Really, Chuyun's philosophy is not that different from that. Mm. And I think that that's why he uses that word, Lingjun, in his poetry, yeah. to indicate that the way to save the kingdom is to distribute wealth in a fair manner. Mm. And of course, we're not talking about democracy or anything like that, but we're talking about according to the principles of the time, according to the social mores of the time. Chiyuan was advocating a, an equitable distribution of wealth. Yeah. Of course, I realize that this is, this is somewhat speculative, but uh, I, this is the impression that uh, Chiyuan's poetry has left on me. Mm. And now you have already written two books on Chiyuan, and after all those years of research on this great poet, why do his poems, a literature scream of antiquity, still matter to readers of today? Well, first, he is one of the greatest poets in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is what we might call a millennial poet. Now, he's not exactly the easiest to read, even in Chinese. Yeah, exactly. But even in China, his poetry is, even though Qian as a hero, is very much celebrated and very much talked about. And of course, his holiday guarantees that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, his poetry uh, seems to be studied mainly by specialists. Yeah. And the specialists uh, argue with each other about what the poetry in fact means. However, given that, even if you have to be studying very hard in order to read the poetry of Qiyan, but that's true of all of the great poetry in the world, yeah. or most of it, I won't say all. Mm. If you want to read Homer in the original Greek, you're going to have to study many years of Greek. (laughs) Even if you want to read Shakespeare in English and you are a native speaker of English, it's not easy. And Qiyan's poetry is is not easy, but it is nonetheless some of the greatest poetry ever written. And it is is poetry that was very, very much ahead of its time. Mm Mm-hmm. Although, when I say ahead of its time, we should bear in mind that uh, while uh, Chu Yan's poetry, as I said before, bears a great deal of resemblance to modern poetry, there there were other uh, writers in the state of Chu at the time who seemed to have been equally advanced in their techniques. Mm -hmm. Another difficult but very entertaining He's sort of the, the, the other side of Chu culture. Chu Yan is the, the weeping, tragic figure. On the other hand, you have a laughing philosophical figure. And that figure is Zhuangzi, mm. the great Taoist philosopher. Mm. If you compare the literary technique of Zhuangzi with the literary technique of Chu Yan, you find that they are very, very similar. Yeah. And not only that, but their thinking is very, very modern. If you read Zhuangzi even today, his philosophy is still very, very challenging. Yeah. And many of, the, many of the issues are still big debates in modern philosophy. 
And it's wonderful how he deals with them in such a poetic and light manner, using metaphor and even almost surrealistically. And that's where, where I say that even Chuangzi has a kind of surrealist quality uh, in his, his writing. And one wonders if Zhuangzi and Chu Yan somehow were participating in a larger kind of literary tendency in the state of Chu at the time. Again, mm. this is purely speculative. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but if you read both, uh, there, there's, a, there's a quality about both, even though one is, a, is laughing at you and the other one is weeping. They are of a piece as great writers, profound thinkers, and very much ahead of their time. That was Shu Yu talking with Gu Pasuku, author of two books, The Shaman and the Heresiarch, a new interpretation of the Li Sao, and The Songs of Chu, an anthology of ancient Chinese poetry by Chu Yuan and others. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. Don't forget that there are always interesting things taking place in the literary world. As such, we always do our best to try to keep you posted and updated. To learn more about us, follow us on our Facebook account, China Plus, or simply download the podcast by searching the keyword Inconquil on iTunes. Before you go, here is a small segment of Chu Yuan's poem, The Ruler of the Xiang River, or Xiangjun in Chinese, translated and read by Professor Gao Suku. Hope you enjoy it as much as we do. The princess does not set forth. She lingers. For whom, alas, is she waiting on the islet mid-river? You of the beautiful form, perfectly adorned, give my boat of cinnamon bark speed. Calm the waves of the rivers Yuan and Xiang. Let the long river flow softly. I watch that princess in the distance coming never, playing panpipes, her thoughts on whom. I am driving flying dragons, my chariot heading north. I am turning now, taking the path to Lake Dongting. Creeping fig leaves my banner, my lanyards of basil, and on flagstaffs of lure-leaf thoroughwort flags. I see Tsangyang in the distance on the far shore. Crossing the great breadth of the long river, I let my spirit fly. I let my spirit fly, but it never reaches her. A bewildered woman sighs, long sighs for me. Tears in torrents cross my face. I long for you, princess, in secret agony. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Yang Yong. Wish you a happy Dragon Boat Festival. 端午节快乐! See you next time!